0: Could it be that philanthropy is really a way of colonizing people in need? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get
1: a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get
0: Nambia back from the nurses' station. Heart's still working. Means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through.
1: Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen as a financial sector that's gotten out of hand There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: One of the things which differentiates liberals from right-wing Republicans is caring about the welfare of our fellow humans. Since federal dollars are generally straitjacketed into spending on what is euphemistically called national security, i.e. weapons systems, it's been left to generous, well-meaning individuals to give money to charity. As a result, our charities that do great important work are forced to spend a lot of time and money Begging for dollars. And as this traditional process goes on, the inequities, the great needs, continue unabated. Today we'll look at the very concept of charity and consider alternatives. Those of us lucky enough to grow up in the middle class, I remember when there was one, were taught that we must help those less fortunate. Thus, the idea of philanthropy is as American as apple pie, and it reinforces the system of ensuring that there are a few people who are super rich. But who does philanthropy serve more? Those who receive or those who so publicly contribute to charity? Our guest today, Edgar Villanueva, in his new second edition of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance, looks at the cultural roots of the notion of charity. Underlying the spirit of charity is a reinforced economic inequity. The book looks at other ways to tap into the spirit of sharing and caring. Edgar Villanueva is an award-winning author, activist, and expert on the intersection of race, wealth, and philanthropy. He's founder and principal of the Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital, which uses education, radical reparative giving, and narrative change to disrupt... The Existing Systems of Moving and Controlling Capital. Villanueva also advises a range of organizations, including national and global philanthropies, Fortune 500 companies, and entertainment and media firms on social impact strategies to advance racial equity from within and via their investments. Edgar Villanueva, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, you say uh, uh, philanthropy is racism in institutional form. Uh, and you were philanthropy executive for 14 years. You've seen past altruistic facade and looked into the shadows. The current system, you say, reinforces colonialism in which there are white saviors and experts who allegedly know best. I don't like that. Villanueva suggests that uh, instead of handouts, reparative action is what reaches the target far better. And you suggest bringing the oppressor into a circle of healing. After more than 16 years as the lone indigenous philanthropy executive at the table, you call for expansion of parties involved in decision-making as a needed medicine for what ails philanthropy. You say we need to push the philanthropic industry to sit with the discomfort they have avoided and take in the reality of the colonial structure of it and then democratize philanthropy. Whoa, what a concept to heal from the effects of colonization. Recipients today are at effect rather than at cause of the well-meaning aid. And that's really going to change. In this new second edition of the book, you say that the real bottom line at philanthropy remains power and privilege. But you say with proper uh, intention and approach, philanthropy can become appropriate medicine. Well, again, thanks for being with us. It's hard to hear that the structure of well-meaning philanthropy does more harm than good. Let's start by you talking about the relationship between economic injustice and systemic racism and the role of philanthropy.
1: Well, when we think about poverty in this country, uh, poverty is the direct product of very intentional um, policies that have been put in place, economic policies over generations that have provided accumulated benefits for some folks in this country, namely white folks, and accumulated benefits for um, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. And so we have, when we think about our entire economic system in this country, that was practically, um, essentially built off um, of the slave trade industry. There is, um, you know, racism in the DNA of how our economic system even works in the first place. Um, of course, philanthropy is a byproduct of that system that 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 is uh, inequality. And so the fact that we have a system that allows for the accumulation of so much wealth in the first place to even be able to start these foundations, um, you know, is something that we have to consider, that the history behind um, the policies and the racism that has afforded um, so few people that opportunity.
0: Well, you, there's a lot packed in there, I must say. and <laughs> And you say that there is today a $1 trillion philanthropy industry. That's hardly how it's usually thought of. Why do you call it an industry?
1: It is an industry. When we think of the word philanthropy in itself, um, philanthropy in community or philanthropy in our cultures, is really just about sharing. Um, the word literally means love of people. And so I know um, growing up, um, as you said, philanthropy was as, as, you know, American as apple pie my My family was very generous. My mom, uh, you know, if, would take food over to the neighbors if someone was sick. These are acts of generosity that um, really um, represent what philanthropy is really all about. What has happened in the last hundred years or so is that this um, this this act of giving has become formalized or institutionalized and has become an industry. Uh, Most of the foundations that exist in the United States right now, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of them now, most of them were started in the last 20 years because what has happened is that uh, wealth advisors and those who are, um, you know, providing uh, consulting to people with wealth, they push them towards starting foundations because they see this as a, a wealth building opportunity. And so the the act of giving, the act of charity, has now become very institutionalized across this, this industry of hundreds of organizations that are holding assets, charitable assets, and are making decisions around who benefits from those assets.
0: Well that is interesting. I you know hadn't thought about that but you know why why are there so many new philanthropies in the last 20 years or so? Well, in the last 20 years or so, maybe it's unrelated. There's a huge uh flow of wealth from the bottom up to a very few at the top. And in order to justify their tremendous new wealth, well, I guess publicly they they have to do something like that. Interesting stuff. And, and you and I spoke about three years ago when the first edition of Decolonizing Wealth first came out. What has changed in the world since we last spoke? Why is there a second edition? How has the conversation expanded beyond redirection of monies to include reparations?
1: So much has changed in the last three years. Um, some for better, some for worse. Um, what we, we see happening um, is a, uh, the wealth gap, uh, the race wealth gap specifically, continues to, to widen um, during the pandemic where so many folks in our country were suffering. We saw lines of food banks longer than ever, so much unemployment. During that time, the wealthiest folks in this country got even wealthier, including the ones who were making very generous, large contributions. And so we're seeing um are not we're not seeing changes there right in terms of this growing wealth gap at the same time I wanted to um write a new edition an updated edition of the book because there have um there have been many organizations institutions that are taking steps forward to change this and I wanted to um you know provide examples of um organizations and philanthropists and others um in other industries as well who are um, really stepping into this idea of truth and reconciliation and healing so that I can um, help folks understand that we're not just talking about a a pipe dream, um, but this is actual, um, you know, real steps that we can take in our communities to uh, see us uh, move forward and to achieve balance. So some
0: people are actually getting it, what you're talking about. Give us some examples. It's it's you know it's always so much easier to criticize than to to show what works. Tell us about some of what you were just describing, please.
1: Some of the things that we see um, happening that are that are inspiring. You know, uh, um, some some institutions with wealth. I'll give one example: the Bush Foundation, that is in St. Paul, Minnesota. This is a, a billion dollar foundation, and they they fund. Um, in several states in the, the Midwestern part of our country um, bush foundation is is you know just sort of an average run of the mill foundation um, that has been doing you know great work. They're not necessarily radical or liberal um by their by their own definitions, but they 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 took time um, to the board there read my book, had a number of conversations um, I was able to consult with their staff over a number of meetings. And they said, you know what, we have to, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge that we as an institution of wealth has we've benefited from this accumulated benefits and and privilege that comes with that through the years. while you know, black and brown folks in our communities have not had access to the same types of opportunities. You know, I tell folks that um, as a Native American. Apple computers has been around longer than our right to vote, <laughs> and so you have to understand there, <laughs> there's a, there's a history of you know um, at, at play that has really prevented uh, you know um, opportunities in, in native black and and uh, other communities of color. So the Bush Foundation kind of taking responsibility for this and really just acknowledging that they needed to do more. They needed to do more than just make uh, grants a handful of grants to support, you know, Black and Native um, communities, they decided to dig deeper and actually to redistribute um, what is the equivalent of 10% of their endowment to create two trust funds, um, $50 million each, one for the Black community and one for the Native American community. And this isn't just, um, you know, philanthropy as usual, where a foundation Mm -hmm. would typically kind of force, like, this is how you have to do it, this is what you have to fund, this is our theory of change. They're literally handing over those dollars to these two communities in their region to redistribute that wealth to individuals in a way that uh, they see fit for their communities. This is kind of unheard of, uh, very unprecedented in our field. So um, it's one example that's really inspiring me that a a different way is possible and that these institutions can change and that this wealth can be redistributed.
0: Fascinating. And as you mentioned, you are a Native American. And as such, you're a rare phenomenon in the field of philanthropy. Numerous reports, conferences, and task forces in the field of philanthropy have tackled the issue of diversity. What, what do the numbers tell us about the impact of such initiatives on who is actually represented and included? How diverse are are the members of the boards which decide how much money should go where? And also, tell us, please, about the proportion of money given specifically to communities of color. A lot of questions in there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, this is a very important question um, because there there is a direct correlation, correlation um, between who sits in these seats making decisions and, and obviously where money goes. We have a diversity crisis in this sector. When we look at the numbers – We know that 92 percent of foundation ceos are white we know that 89 percent of boards or trustees are white and uh, you know this is not surprising when you you consider you know again looking back at history who has had the opportunity to build wealth in the first place to start foundations often these are family institutions and so the boards may be comprised of all family members and so, as a result of that, the majority of of grants that are made from foundations are going to white-led um, organizations that, you know, um, are of a certain size. And uh, you know, it's not surprising. It's, it's human behavior. I always put this kind of in, in my my own context as a person that, you know, if, if I am going to uh, buy Girl Scout cookies, for example, I'm much more likely to buy them from um, a, a girl, a little girl in my building that I know and see and that is in my network and um, versus going across town and finding someone over there to buy the cookies from. The same happens in uh-huh. our giving. We, we tend to give to people that we know. Uh-huh. And so um, the lack of diversity um, in these seats has resulted in less than 10%, about 8%, only 8% of grants are going to, uh, explicitly to organizations led by people of color working in communities of color.
0: Wow. That's such interesting stuff and fairly obvious when you think about it, but we don't often think about it. If you just tuned yeah. in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Edgar Villanueva, who has a new second edition of his book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. There's a lot to look at here. What ails what else Philanthropy at its core, you contend, is colonialism. Your central proposition is that a colonizer virus, in quotes, planted in people via the culture at first contacts in 500 years ago, lives on through the institutions of this country, including the philanthropy industry. How does it continue to survive and operate?
1: It continues to survive because we have, uh, you know, if you think about in context of a a, a virus which we all know all too well um, due to this pandemic, it continues to operate because it has not been diagnosed or called out. there's not there's not been any accountability in this industry to really um, push folks to change. Back to that issue of diversity we were just discussing. We've spent uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of dollars on studies and reports, and it's been the topic of so many panels at Philip philanthropy conferences through over the last two decades um, that I've attended. Yet we're not seeing any change um, because there's just no, um, you know, real accountability from, to make that happen. Um, there is, uh, you know, a lot of power and push that comes with sitting in these seats, and that's not. Power privilege that 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 you know many are willing to to give up, and as a no. result of that, we we see these colonial dynamics acting out by not just in uh, who who decides and who benefits, but also in the way philanthropy is happening, the way that these institutions are engaging with communities, sort of forcing a, a assimilation um, into a certain way of thinking or being because they they have that prerogative due to the the amount of resources and power that. <laughs> we hold in this
0: industry. I, I don't really know that much about the history of, of philanthropy and, and institutions, foundations like that. My sense is that when tremendous money was made in the so-called Gilded Age, which is less of a Gilded Age than now, that instead of paying taxes and you know, doing their part and and reducing their tremendous wealth. Actually, uh, that, that that these were set up as sort of a uh, a public relations uh, way of preserving their incredible wealth and power. Uh, it, it, when did this kind of institutionalization of, of philanthropy begin?
1: Um, that that's exactly how it began as a, as a, a public relations um, operation. What happened um, decades ago um, during the Gilded Age? There was an incident that happened in a company. I believe it was one of the Rockefeller companies, and um, if my memory serves me well, I believe it was um, you know in a a mining um, accident where dozens of people died, and the company said, uh, you know, we we got to do something to to remove this bad press. We got to (laughs) make ourselves look better. Why don't we give some money to, um, you know, some charitable gifts to to make to sort of launder our our reputation? And so that's exactly what happened, and it became sort of a marketing kind of activity for these wealthy folks to improve their reputations or to cover up the the harm or the the extraction they were causing um, on people and the planet. And then these same folks um, organized themselves together, the Rockefellers of the world at that time, and petitioned to Congress, not only um, are we doing this, um, you know, uh, t- sort of this charitable act out of the goodness of our hearts, but we want to actually get a tax break for doing it. Uh-huh. It was actually the, the, the organized to cause that to happen and it's just been an um, an ongoing um, since its very very origi- origins. It's been an ongoing, um, almost Ponzi scheme in some ways to um, build wealth for folks to avoid paying taxes and to maintain power and control. You know, not, not notwithstanding that philanthropy and the resources that, that have been got, that have got community have you know absolutely have done good. Right. right. We can cite many examples. But when we see the entire picture of what's going on here, we really have to question what is the net value of philanthropy overall when uh, the origins of this work um, came from sort of a bad place and we continue to see the wealthy folks benefit um, without seeing really transformative change happen in terms of this, this wealth gap that continues to exist.
0: You're making me think of uh, one of the more interesting characters in American history, Huey Long, who talked about bringing people to the table instead of, you know, if they're starving people, instead of uh, actually allowing people to come to the table, just throwing them a few crumbs and hoping they'll be satisfied with that. I mean, uh, John D. Rockefeller himself used to uh, pass out dimes to people. Uh, It's just, it's, it's quite a tradition. And foundations are required by law, to pay out a minimum of five percent of their total assets each year what what about the other 95 percent i mean aren't foundations set up to give money away
1: you would think that right <laughs> <laughs> um, so the five percent this is what this is called the minimum payout rule this was uh, um, a law put in place in 1976 so we're talking, uh, what, about 45 years ago or so, um, that w- Congress had to actually pass an act of legislation to force foundations to give away money. So, you know, folks were starting these foundations, putting millions and millions of dollars into these, these uh, entities or these vehicles and getting major tax breaks. And then there was no public benefit to that at all. The money was just um, actually invested in private markets or sitting in a bank. And so when they uh, enacted the minimum payout rule, the 5% in 1976, it was intended to be the floor. And what has happened, uh, you know, uh, generations later or or so is that that that, uh, 5% has become the ceiling. And that's, that's um, pretty much the most uh, private foundations pay out. And so we're talking about 95% of this trillion dollar industry um, where, you know, uh, again, charitable um, assets, tax deductible, 95% of that money is actually invested in private markets uh, with the goal of building and generating more wealth. and. Um, and what we know about that 95% is that a lot of those investments are, uh, are the majority actually about 85% are invested in harmful and extractive, extractive industries, and so there's a there's a lot of things that the, the public doesn't really realize when you when you hear of a foundation, you know, doing a press release about a big grant initiative. That's fantastic. Uh, But these institutions are sitting on a lot more money um, that is not actually benefiting the public and, in fact, might be harming the public.
0: Oh, how convenient it is uh, to preserve that structure rather than, you know, actually doing something real about it. And, you know, the title of the book is Decolonizing Wealth, and colonization has been integral integral, I guess, to white European culture for many centuries, the colonizers may convince themselves that they're bringing needed good to the poor recipients. But it's always top-down white superior saviors. So many examples. And I'm reading a book now about uh, Henry Stanley in in Africa bringing civilization to Africa. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, you know, this uh, process and this structure never works for very long. People don't like occupying forces running their lives and their nations. If colonization is a sickness, then decolonization might be a remedy. And work is already underway to decolonize educational curricula, healthcare, even organizational processes. Tell us a bit about this growing now global movement, please.
1: Yeah, decolonization, which is you know quite a, quite a word, is is literally the process of undoing colonization. Um, the way that I I think about it, um, you know, it is a very political act. It means returning the sovereignty and self determination to the indigenous people that were there. Um, which in the twenty first century is really kind of hard to imagine in this country because our lives are so intertwined, our families, our businesses. And so, um, you know, it's really hard to imagine undoing 500 years of colonization. What we can do, um, um, my approach to decolonization is actually acknowledging what has happened. Let's, you know, let's not erase the the past. Let's actually lean into uh, that truth so that we can come to terms with that and to think about how we can collectively heal from that. Where do we go from here? Because the truth is, colonization has not only harmed my community, my Native American community, other communities of color, but the the tactics of colonization also have harmed white people. And so uh, we're a young country, 250 years almost here, and uh, we, we, we have to see that there are some things that are not working for us, and we've got to come together and figure out um, how we decolonize, how can we undo some of these things that are in place that – um, are hoarding resources um, just in a small group with a small group of people, hoarding power. How can we shift that so that we can all get what we need and we can all thrive and we can heal from our history um, of, of racism?
0: Boy, it sounds it sounds good and it sounds, uh, frankly, realistic and possible. And, of course, decolonization, which you say is, you know, that's a big word. It's not a familiar concept to most of us. Okay, give us a sense of the decolonized life. What does a decolonized work environment look and feel like? A decolonized learning environment, a decolonized economy?
1: you know what for me, the way that i the lens that I bring is to understand in a situation, so if we're talking about the workplace, what type of dominant culture is there that might be prohibiting, everyone from thriving. Of course, diversity is sort of the obvious thing that we can look to, right? Are we are we diverse? Are we sharing power? Who's making decisions about resources in an organization? But also, how are we um, doing our work? What is our relationship like with community? Are we actually sharing power? Are we listening? Are we in relationship? It's moving beyond the transactional. It's moving beyond sort of this separation paradigm that you know, what we do and the decisions that we make don't actually matter to other people because in fact, they do. We are all related. Um, it's taking on an indigenous worldview of really believing that, that the decisions that I make literally impact other people and, and impact the planet. And um, in my culture, we actually um, believe in the, the idea of, of seven generations. So not only are my decisions impacting people today, but they will impact seven generations to come. So, I think it's just it's a a really different mindset that is more communal. It's more about cooperation. It's more about um sharing and um understanding the the idea of when we have enough, <laughs> we can actually um, you know share and reallocate and redistribute resources to make sure everyone has that so decolonizing wealth is is not about um taking a, a vow of poverty um it is about making sure our working or wanting. Um, everyone to benefit from wealth and then for it not to be concentrated in, in just a certain place. So that's that's really the, the approach. It's examining um, how power is operating um, and it's examining where the resources are, who controls and decides, and shifting that decision-making process to be more in alignment with um, nature and more in alignment with um, centering the, a love of people and relationship.
0: Yeah. Again, it's decolonization is sort of an unfamiliar word, but what you're describing is it's not all that complicated, actually. And one one thing I cannot figure out, and I'm hoping someday, psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever, can can uh, figure out why people who have say a couple of hundred million dollars are in this frenzy for more, 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 more. I mean. You know, like uh, Bezos has like two hundred billion dollars. What? I mean, how much money can you have? A billion is a thousand million, and having two—it's like—it's beyond belief. How much money do you need? And what does that do by concentrating so much incredible wealth in the hands of so few people? You know, what what does that do to? Democracy itself. I mean, you talk about harming white people. Talk about that a little bit, if you would, please.
1: You know, the, the truth is, um, I, I, I think for folks who have enormous wealth, I've had the opportunity to, to meet and interact with some of these folks. Um, we we all have trauma around money, whether you're you're rich or poor or working class, and. Um, I think for folks who have accumulated so much wealth, what I often see is that wealth becomes their their identity, and there's a fear of losing that. And um, often there's a, um, a lack of intimacy and connection to um, other folks or to community. And so that wealth becomes a, a thing that um, that that really centers their their identity and their connection and facilitates um, relationships for them versus authentic, types of relationships that we might build with our families and, and with folks. But the idea of, of colonization harming all of us, um, the truth is the tactics of colonization, which are about dividing, conquering, controlling, separating, dominating, um, you know, really do lead to um, Harm uh, and cause harm for for all of us. It's very obvious how that might happen for um, folks who don't have wealth or for people of color. But in white communities, um, it's it's really just a false reality to think that we can um, you know uh, build fences around our homes or you know uh, lead companies and make decisions about um, you know um, at, at work potentially. I'm, I'm thinking of like in the corporate sector where. Does this false idea of like I can dump, dump waste, you know, right down the street or on the other side of town, and it doesn't impact
0: me? Mm-hmm. The
1: separation um, paradigm that is just unrealistic. The truth is, subscribing to these um, types of behaviors of hoarding, um, dominating, controlling, and pressing are are destroying our planet, and ultimately will destroy all of us. And are creating such div- divisions in our um, in our community and. Um, separating us and you know we see what has happened in this past year where white supremacy has just been so visible in ways that I never imagined I would see in my lifetime right and this is not this is this is something that's harming all of us and um, the the type of life and community that we want to have um, as a nation.
0: Gosh fear is such a powerful thing and it causes so much damage and it doesn't have to be that way. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about something that doesn't normally get talked about, philanthropy and some of the real problems with that and and how, you know, it, it, it preserves power more than it really helps and addresses the actual problem. Our guest today is Edgar Villanueva. He's got a new second edition of his book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. For 16 plus years in the field, they've revealed to you that actual philanthropists, those who engaged in acts of love for humanity, are quite prevalent in the regular population. Though rare inside the field's formal institutions. Say more about that, please.
1: You know, I, when I think about uh, who a philanthropist is, like often when you hear that word, you immediately go to, you know, Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, those types of folks. Um, the truth is, the real philanthropists of this country are everyday folks that are, uh, you know, walking in us, living in our communities. When we look at data around giving, we know that um, a a very small percentage of people with wealth actually even give. Um, It's been very, very recent that uh, Jeff Bezos has become a philanthropist. He was sitting on that money for a long time. Uh And there's many folks who have uh, enormous wealth whose names we don't know, and they're not charitable at all. But what we know is that um, everyday folks, uh, working class folks, um, we give away a higher percentage of our incomes. We're we're extremely generous, and so the real philanthropists are uh, are just everyday folks who are who take care of their families, who take care of their neighbors, who give to their faith communities, who give to their schools, who are supporting nonprofits. And maybe we're there's no press release around the money that we're giving, <laughs> and maybe it's not in the millions of dollars. Um, but the, the fact is, um, we are a very generous people, and. Um, I, I think we should all reclaim the title of philanthropist and, and, and take on that identity because that's um, that's where most of the giving is actually happening. Is just from everyday folks who are giving twenty five dollars, a hundred dollars, whatever we have to support um, you know good causes in our community.
0: Interesting. I, I can certainly see that, and I must say it when I see buildings named after people who gave a lot of money who are still alive. It just—it sort of creeps me out somehow that, you know, why do you have to have your name on a building? I mean, is that really? What's going on here? You know, I know they they pay for these these new buildings, etc., but just something about it just ain't right. On, On the other side, hardly any of us think of ourselves as healers, nor do we think about calls to action as medicine. In fact, American culture generally disparages such thinking. I wonder if you could please say more about that.
1: You know, I have to say that in my journey in the last couple of years, I um, did not think of myself as a healer. I talked about healing a lot. I think healing is the only path out of this mess that we're in right now as a country um, we've got to a- address the original, um, you know, pains and, and, and really um, the grievances of, of people of color in this country and, and deal with that. And, and truth, reconciliation, and healing is the only way. As I've traveled the, the country and, and the world over the past um, couple of years talking about this, um, I began to just understand that me sharing my story me holding space for these conversations was, was actually creating spaces for healing. And um, I remember I was at a conference and I was introduced uh, to speak there and someone called me a healer. That's how they introduced me and I, I was like, wow, is that what I am? Um, and I've, I've come to learn that in addition to moving money to communities, which is a, a form of medicine for me, it's, it's what I love to do, what I'm called to do, telling my story, um, Inspiring folks to to uh, take action to come together is also a form of medicine. Um, and so, if you're if you're sharing medicine, you're a healer.
0: Interesting. And and the music I've chosen at the end of our discussion is from Band Aid from their uh, Do They Know It's Christmas Time at all? And that's that that's not a healing. <laughs> it's not a healing. And it just. It amazes me how how that kind of attitude goes on. It's so familiar and it just keeps the power and wealth where it is instead of healing. Healing and medicine actually heals. You know, it's not just putting a Band-Aid on something. It actually heals. And that's very different from, you know, the, hey, look at me. I'm giving away a whole bunch of money. You know, it's it's really, uh, it's different. And. Some on the left look for simple solutions as to what are really complex problems. I mean, those interests completely reject capitalism per se in its entirety. That's not going to happen. It's completely unrealistic. And you contend that there are uh, parts of the philanthropy system worth holding on to, such as, and, and what do you believe is beyond remedy. Talk about that a little bit, please.
1: I think there's so much potential to redistribute these resources in a way that can um, be transformative in communities. I think if foundations would agree to not sit on the wealth, <laughs> redistribute this wealth, uh, follow examples like the Bush Foundation, you know, although that, that's a, a great um, step that they made, they've probably already made that money back already it, it's it's not um, gonna hurt any any organization, any foundation to give more. So at a minimum there we've got to we've got to see strides in diversity, but um even more i um, I hope that we can put pressure on these institutions to divest from harmful and extractive industries. It just makes no sense for. Um, a foundation to be making grants to support criminal justice reform. Yet their endowments are tied up in private prisons. The same in terms of climate work, we're supporting climate justice conservation with our grants, but yet our our wealth and endowments are tied up in fossil fuels. And so it, it's really about just coming to terms with the truth and making commitments to use all of the resources that we have, all of our resources. Um, in in alignment with our our mission and with alignment with our our values. And this is, you know, for all of us everyday folks, we can also make those same types of decisions in our lives. Where are we banking? Are we banking in institutions that um, align with our values or with institutions that are harming communities? Who are we giving to? Um, How are we um, building relationships with folks outside of our bubble? Who are we inviting to dinner and sitting down and, and really connecting with? At the end of the year, when we make our, our you know, right checks for, uh, towards charity, are we making sure that we are um, being equitable and um, prioritizing um, groups led by people of color that are under resourced and have been and could benefit so much by, by um, you know, giving? So giving is a, a beautiful thing, uh, whether it's personal, whether it's institutional, but we've got to do so in a way that is transparent, accountable. Um, aligned with values and is not doing harm. And um, I think that's possible.
0: Well, it, it is possible, and, and the, there's there's more to it. I mean, you're, you're right. I think, you know, when people write those end-of-the-year charitable uh, checks, do, do we think about, you know, how much of it is going to uh, communities of color, places like that, where people can actually decide the use of the money themselves? Uh, You're right. I mean, it has to be looked at. And, of course, people in power rarely cede their power. They don't give up their power willingly, to put it mildly. One of the changes that decolonization requires is that some of the usual suspects give up their seats at the table in favor of those whose communities are being funded. What does that transition look like?
1: You know, I I am open uh, and supportive of the idea for there to be actual legislation or requirements imposed on on foundations because we're not making the changes fast enough. I think we need some type of outside pressure. For example, we mentioned earlier that that 89% of the boards or the trustees of organizations um, are all white. Um, I think there could be uh, a requirement on these types of um, organizations who have this tax status to have a board that reflects the communities they aim to serve. This is not unusual for any um, uh, federally qualified health center, for example. These are nonprofits that are um, highly subsidized by the federal government through block grants to provide health care for folks and communities. There's a requirement on those institutions if you get funding from the feds you have to have a board that's 51% um, comprised of the patients that you serve. Really forcing them to have um, people with lived experience on the board making those decisions. I think this same type of principle could be applied to foundations. These are organizations that are are not getting federal dollars but they are getting major tax write-offs. Yes. In essence, those dollars are public in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's dollars that would have gone into the public system and these are 501c3 organizations that um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that we need to consider what type of pressure um, can we as taxpayers, uh, you know, um, put on um, these organizations to be more diverse, more democratic, um, to be more transparent, um, to, to publish their financial statements. Um, to stop operating in the shadows and 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 you know um, and using these organizations to um, kind of push forward um, private or individual types of just That's that's not uh, that's that's where the harm is, and I believe that's one place where we can look at some type of outside pressure or policy change to kind of force um, organizations to do the right thing.
0: And of course, we have a. Huge legislature in Washington, 435 in the House and 100 in the Senate. And they're generally just kind of putting out fires most of the time. But I wonder, do you know of any examples of members of Congress uh, in either body talking about what you were just suggesting? It seems like it could be uh, popular. Is there anybody doing it?
1: The challenge is, uh, you know, a lot of the folks who have the wealth to start foundations are also lining the pockets of politicians. <laughs> and so that's <laughs> so, you know, it, it's really uh, it, it challenging there. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: uh, the, the other thing, if you've ever received a grant from a foundation, they will be really clear with you that you can't use those dollars for lobbying. That's that's okay. against the law for. Um, a private foundation to fund lobbying. Yet once a year, um, foundations convene, it's called Foundations on the Hill, foundations convene and go to DC and continue to make their case to uh, basically for, for Congress not to change anything. And so they themselves lobby on their own behalf, but they will not allow their um, beneficiaries to lobby. Um, so so there's, there's a lot of contradictions uh, there. I will say what has happened recently where we're seeing some some groundswell of movement um, uh, is around donor-advised funds. Donor-advised funds is sort of the new wave uh, that people with wealth are hiding their money because foundations, if you start a foundation, you have to have some type of operations going on. You do have that 5% required payout. So instead of um, starting foundations now, people are putting their money in donor-advised funds at financial institutions like Fidelity, um, for example. In donor-advised funds, where you can put millions of dollars, there is zero payout requirements. And you don't have to have any type of operational foundation. And so literally, you can just dump money into donor-advised funds, get major tax write offs and those, those dollars are sitting there accumulating interest with no type of public benefit. And so Fidelity Charitable um, is now the largest holder of charitable assets in the world. They're bigger than the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation. Um, so this is a, another way um, the, where you know things have evolved for wealthy folks to be able to um, continue to accumulate and benefit um, without having any public um, benefit for, for those tax deductions.
0: Isn't that special? Mm, 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 mm. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about a key aspect of democracy. people having uh, some say in our own future and how tax dollars are uh, you know spent and and you know economic justice, economic justice. how much democracy can you have if there's no Uh, economic justice. Our guest today is Edgar Villanueva, and we're talking about his new second edition book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. And as it is with, with all of us as individuals, the system never wants to look in the mirror at things that have been done that are hurtful or embarrassing. You suggest that's exactly what needs to be done. That is, s- stories of exactly these regrettable experiences that may have the greatest impact transforming us into healers. How?
1: I think that's really the first step for, for all of us towards healing is to hold up that mirror and to ask ourselves, how have we potentially harmed communities? How have we, har- how have we harmed others? For a lot of these philanthropic institutions, um, you know, they're well-meaning, good intention um, folks work there. No one's going to a foundation probably saying, you know, I can't wait to, to not fund a, a black organization today. Um, but we, we have to step back and, and ask ourselves how we have harmed and what our responsibility is to repair. Even in our personal lives, right, it's kind of, again, pretty simple, like you were saying earlier. We were taught as children, if you hurt someone, you, you apologize. And we're seeing this type of practice begin to happen more and more with, with um, organizations who are, um, you know, looking at the origins of their wealth, who was harmed in that process, and what the, the requirement for paying reparations might look like. We've seen this in the last um, year or two with the LA Times, who uh, the owner of that newspaper wrote a beautiful, beautiful apology, acknowledging that... You know, that company that has been around since the late 1800s, how they, they have perpetuated uh, propaganda around um, white supremacy, how they have not um, been uh, diverse in their hiring and all of the things that have happened through the years, actually documenting and acknowledging and then apologizing, saying we're sorry. We are sorry. We take ownership for that. And this is what we're committed to do different moving forward. Everyone is putting together a DEI plan in their organization They're thinking about diversity, but we have to also look back and say, well, yes, we're going to do things differently in the future, but what have we done in the past that needs to be repaired? That is a critical, critical step to the path of healing, and it's something that we as a nation must must really grapple with. We're the only one of the only countries that um... has not had a process of truth and reconciliation for all the things that have happened here we just sweep it under the carpet yeah. we don't want to teach it in schools we want to change rewrite history yeah. and so it's it's sort of like uh, you know america the american way is to sort of just look forward and be futuristic and and kind of pretend that things haven't happened and the downside of that is that 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 pain is going to continue to fester under the the surface and and, um, you know, keep harming us. We're not going to break these cycles of violence um, or be able to move forward until we actually rip that band off and, and, and get right to the heart of what's broken and commit to healing.
0: Yes, and I was amazed to learn a few years ago. In, in Massachusetts, there's a very good uh, Perkins School for the Blind. They do some great work. As it turns out, the money originated from the opium trade from China what would be the harm in saying oops that wasn't a good thing let's carry on you know our good work but recognize that making money from from addicting people to uh, opioids not particularly a good thing and right. i i wonder about you know it's been said that the tools that built the master's house will never dismantle the master's house Should the goal really be dismantling the master's house? If so, that would be a
1: very hard
0: sell. Your thoughts on that, please.
1: Yeah, you know, that quote comes up often. um, And I I think it's when we think about the tools, often people think about money, that we're talking about money. I kind of see that that phrase from a, a different angle. I don't think it's actually the money that's the problem. I think it's us as people and how we're using the tools, right? Um, I, historically, I think we've used uh, the tool of money to harm, to, you know, to hoard, um, you know, colonization was all about um, you know, a, a violent act of taking and, and killing anything that got in your way to take the resources. And so I think there's an opportunity to, you know, to flip that script and to, to use money differently to, as, um, as medicine, as a form of repair. Uh, if we are prioritizing putting money where the hurt is the worst. And, and that's in communities of color who have been marginalized by by the system and economic policy. So I, I do think um, it's not about the money or, or about the tool, but the person using the tools, which is us and, and what we need to do to change as people.
0: Indeed. And, and, and it seems clear that you're encouraging a shift away from the altruism dominant in philanthropy toward reciprocity tell us what you mean please and how would such a move change the nature of our relationships
1: yeah we need we we need less charity and we need more change right um, ah. as you were saying earlier about um, you know throwing throwing crumbs uh, you know uh, across the room or or to, to others you know, there's nothing wrong with 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 feeding and addressing, you know, feeding people, providing housing, addressing these immediate needs. We we've got to do that right out of the kindness of our hearts. We also have to examine the system that's at play that that continues to um, create, you know, perpetuate poverty and um, the ongoing cycles of of just inequality. And what can we do to disrupt that? We all have to become activists, right? We all have to vote um, and we all have to push for change and get people in office that share our ideas and that are going to fight for, for changes in policy, you know, that are going to begin to address these root causes of, of poverty and not continue to sprinkle dollars um, and feel really good about ourselves because we, we you know, threw someone um, a meal. And so that's that's the real change that needs to happen. And... That is not um, uh, movement building, advocacy, policy change is not a place where philanthropy is often interested in um, investing or supporting Um, because, right, um, because those groups, social movements, um, organizers are working to dismantle the system that has created um, the benefit um, and that these folks enjoy. And so That's what we've got to do, though. We all have to shift resources, um, you know, to that type of change that's systemic um, so that we can see uh, more expansive, widespread progress um, versus continuing to just address Mm. the symptom, the problem.
0: Indeed, make real changes. And it does seem that empires always fall after a long time. And the obvious meaning of decolonization is ending empires, allowing formerly oppressed people to govern themselves, to have a say in their own future. It's happening all over the world. It is. Uh, how optimistic are you that what you're prescribing is getting through to the philanthropy interest or to the, and to the general public?
1: I'm very optimistic. I, Within the sector of philanthropy, I shared one example um, with the Bush Foundation, but we're also just seeing uh, the weather change in this industry. The conversation about race, um, about white privilege, white supremacy is, is very uh, central right now. I don't think I five years ago I heard anyone say anything about white privilege or white supremacy, True. and now it's, it's it's very much a part of the the conversation. I think that we have been in the space of reckoning for the past three years um, as mm. an industry, and it's really pushing folks to think differently and to come, to come to terms with how we have failed communities. So I'm really inspired by that. I know in the past year, thanks to social movements, the Movement for Black Lives, the work that we're doing at decolonizing wealth project—we've seen a dramatic increase in funding going to um, communities of color. Um, hopefully, that will be sustained, and it's not sort of a quick knee-jerk response to the murder of George Floyd. Uh, but my organization, you know, for example, has um, uh, advised—you um, know—the best we can count about two, 250 million. Uh, new dollars um, that went to um, black and brown organizations uh, working in those communities. And so that's something we feel really proud of, seeing seeing the uptick in those investments and, and gifts to uh, folks who are working in those communities, but also working for uh, to build power, right, and to see systemic uh, changes. Mm. I'm also optimistic beyond the sector of philanthropy. We are yes. uh, doing work with folks in the entertainment industry and, and corporations where um, we've been invited in for real um, real conversations about what has happened and where these organizations have harmed communities and what their responsibility is to work to repair that and for me, that's about you know. All I feel like I can ask of folks is like, hey, if you you know you me- you messed up, you've harmed, right. you've done wrong, apologize and make it right. And it's it's the least we can do for our you know our fellow humans.
0: And I can relate. Uh, being Yom Kippur as we're recording this, that what you're talking about is what the uh, the Jewish high holiday is all about. And just uh, quickly, okay. if people are interested in. Uh, Uh, The Decolonizing Wealth Project, there must be something on the internet that you can point people to.
1: Absolutely. Our website is decolonizingwealth.com. You can go there to check it out. Um, There's an invitation there to join our giving circle called Liberated Capital. It's a community of 350 plus donors who Mm -hmm. we all put our money together. We're all philanthropists, $5 a month, $25 a month, and We've been able to uh, raise about $5 million over the past year um, on our own to fund directly in communities. So lots of opportunities to connect there and to participate um, in your own way in this movement to decolonize
0: wealth. And again, that website is what?
1: Decolonizingwealth.com.
0: Terrific. Thank you so much. And it's always good to have some sense of optimism for moving uh, in a better direction and learning from history. What a concept, learning from history. Thank you so much. The book is called Decolonizing Wealth, the second edition, and our guest has been its author, Edgar Villanueva. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: And as promised, here's an example of the spirit of colonizing charity.